Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, so please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, we started our study in the book of Ephesians. Um, and before we look at the first few verses, I want to um, reflect a little bit on, on something, in, on a question. And the question is, what is a Christian? What defines a Christian? I think that the, the world has different definitions or different ideas about what a Christian is. So, for example, for some people, a Christian or Christians are a group of people who are very tight about, about most things. Uh, for, for some Christians, are a group of people who feel that they are holier and better than everyone else. So maybe that's, you know, that's the perception that some people have. Uh, one perception that, you know, was new to me when I, when I first moved to this country is precisely the perception that country has of Christianity, right? Like I, I, I think of songs like Jesus was a country boy. I don't know if you know that song. Or God and guns. Or beer with Jesus. I don't, I don't know if any of these songs sound familiar to you. I just did a Google search because, you know, I had fun listening to some of them. Um, or this one, I think, I think this one, you know, I, I did actually copy the chorus of this one because I think it kind of summarizes that idea. This is by Michael Austin, and it says, Give me God, guns, and good old country music. All I need under the sun is God, guns, and country music. So obviously that's, you know, that's a perception that some people have about Christianity, right? Being a Christian is all about being, you know, a country boy or whatever. And, you know, there, there are many other uh, perceptions of Christianity. To some people, Christians are people who are very welcoming and maybe, you know, I'm thinking more of liberal churches that will uh, uh, post a pride flag on their, uh, on their front and say, everyone is welcome here. And, and, you know, they are mostly about social justice. They are mostly about doing good to others. Again, there are very many um, ideas or perceptions that people have about Christianity. I think one of them, and I think this is actually a perception that, that Christians have about themselves or an idea that people have about Christianity, is that Christians are people who have um, made a prayer to accept Jesus into their heart, right? I think this is something that, uh, that probably many of us even today would think and say, yeah, you know, that's, that's part of what makes me a Christian. And I would say, well, you know, I wouldn't necessarily deny that. I wouldn't say that you shouldn't make a prayer to, you know, to trust in the Lord Jesus. But I would also say you shouldn't solely rely on the fact that you made a prayer when you were, I don't know, six or seven years old, or that you wrote in the back of your Bible or in the front of your Bible that, you know, now you are saved on, on July 17th of 1971 or whatever. Today, we're going to talk about what defines a Christian. Today, we're going to talk about what the Bible says that a Christian is. And, and, you know, I think the Bible has many things to say about what a Christian is. But here in this section of Ephesians, we actually encounter one of the most beautiful definitions, or maybe not definition, but one of the most beautiful passages about 
some of the things that defined, define us as Christians. Last week, when we opened the letter to the Ephesians, when we started this study, some of the things that we learned is that Paul writes to the Ephesians and he tells them that they are a new people. They are a new creation. They are a new family. Um, he defines uh, the church as God's new people, as God's new temple. And in Ephesians, Paul tells them that, uh, you know, he, he, he is reminding the Ephesians who are Gentile believers. Gentile is someone who is, a, who is not a Jew. He is reminding Gentile believers, the Ephesians, that they are now a part of God's family. And so in chapter 1, the, the, uh, the verses that we're going to talk about today, we're going to see just this beautiful description, this beautiful poem of all the things that God has done for us, the things that define us as Christians. So let's read Ephesians 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And I am going to ask you to stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 1, 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible passage that celebrates the blessings that we have in Christ. For this beautiful passage that praises you, God, for the blessings that you have given us in Christ. And God, I pray that as we look into these blessings, that we would worship you, that we would, alongside with Paul, worship you and give you glory and give you praise, give you blessings because of what you've done for us. Please uh, enlighten us. Please open our hearts, open our eyes to see the glory of your gospel. Help us to understand what defines us as Christians. 
Please speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this passage, Paul is blessing God. Paul is worshiping God for all the things that he has done for his people. He is worshiping God for the salvation that he has given his people. Um, but let's start with the greeting first. And, and I do, I, I want to go through it rather quickly because we have a, a very, um, a very hefty section ahead of us. And, and even before I, I go any, any, any further, I do want to say once again, I did it again. I, I, I gave myself a little bit too much to preach. I think this should have been divided in, into two different sermons, but let's just go. Let's just go for it. So in, in verse 1, Paul greets the church. And, and here in this greeting, we can already start to tell at least three things, three things that define us as Christians. So Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so three things that I want to notice from this greeting is number one, that Christians are saints, right? Notice how Paul addresses the Ephesians. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of the New Testament teaches us that those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have been saved, we are saints. Now, this is, this is an interesting word, especially if you come from a Catholic background or you have Catholic friends. Uh, you are, I'm sure you are familiar with the concept that saints are people who have maybe performed a miracle and, and live such perfect lives that after they died, the, the Catholic Church got together and, and basically they decided to, to uh, uh, I cannot remember the, canonize them, or, or I don't know exactly what the word is, but basically make them saints. Uh, but what the Bible teaches here is that everyone who is a believer in Christ, everyone who has been saved is a saint. Um, now, the word saint means to be set apart or to be consecrated. So here in this particular context, saint, even though it is related to the word holiness. It has the same root. In this particular context, when he is talking about saints, he is talking about people who have been set apart for God, people who have been consecrated for God. And so basically he is saying, you Ephesians and you, the church of God, you are a people that God has set apart for himself, a people that God has separated from the world, separated from the rest of humanity to be his own people to be consecrated for him. So we learn that Christians are people who are saints, people who have been set apart by God. We also learn that Christians are people who are faithful in Christ Jesus. One at the beginning I talked about different ideas that people have about Christianity, and I think that one of the ideas that we ourselves Christians have about Christianity sometimes is that a Christian is simply someone who believes in Jesus. Now, I am not saying that Christianity is any less than believing in Jesus. I think that believing in Jesus is, is extremely important for Christianity. But remember the words of James when he says that e even demons believe and shudder. So belief in Jesus, even though it is essential for Christianity, is not 
what necessarily what makes you a Christian, because again, even demons believe. What really what makes someone a Christian is faithfulness to Christ. Is that that idea of being loyal to him, being uh, um, it, belief in Christ, true Christian belief in Christ. It's not just a belief of, you know, intellectual or intellectually knowing that Christ is real, that he died for us. In fact, you know, I, I can share my testimony with you at some point later, but I grew up believing all of that stuff. I grew up in a Christian family and I grew up believing that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I grew up believing that God is real. I grew up believing all of those things. And yet, I don't believe God saved me until I was about 18. So, you know, if I'm especially for the, for the kids here who grew up in a Christian family, you might believe all of these things. You might know all of these things. But being a Christian is more than just believing in Christ. Being a Christian is being faithful to Him, is surrendering your life to Him, is believing that He is the only one that can save you, that you cannot save yourself, that your intellectual knowledge of Him cannot save yourself, but He alone is the one that can save you. And therefore, because He is our Lord and our Savior, we are faithful to Him. We are uh, we live lives of allegiance to him. And then lastly, just from this greeting before we move on to the, to the next section, is that Christians are people who are, surprise, surprise, people who are in Christ. That's the whole, that's the whole idea of Christianity. And that's the main, one of the main threads that runs throughout this entire uh, um, blessing that Paul, uh, that Paul writes is that we are in Christ. We are united to Christ. All of these blessings that are ours are ours in Christ. If it were not for Christ, it would be impossible for us to have any of these blessings. If we were not united to Christ, it would be impossible for us to have any of these blessings. The reason why Paul can speak so highly of the church, last week we were talking about, you know, how this letter is about how how the church is in Christ and how Jesus is the head of the church. And, and he talks very, very highly of the church. And the reason he can do this is because he knows that the church are a people who are in Christ, a people who are united to Christ. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we were made alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So a Christian is someone who is united to Christ, someone who is in Christ or with Christ someone who has been raised with Christ, someone who has, uh, who has been, um, who has, you know, come to, from dead to life together with Christ. And even Paul goes as far as to say that it's someone who is with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the view that Paul has uh, of the church. So those three things are things that, that you know, define us as Christians that we are saints, that we are faithful to Christ, and that we are in Christ or united to him. So now let's get to the blessing. Let's get to, to this section where Paul 
blesses God, he praises him. So he says in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And before we even get to the blessings, I think we need to notice that these blessings are um, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And I think it is important for us to notice this because, uh, well, number one, so that we can praise him for these things. Think about it. When was the last time that you blessed God, that you thanked God, that you, that you sang praise to God or just prayed praise to God for the spiritual blessings that he has given you? If I'm honest, you know, when, when in our home, when we pray uh, for the food, when we, when we do those things, a lot of the times we only focus on the material blessings. We say, God, we thank you for, you know, giving us this house and thank you for this food that you've given us and thank you that so-and-so is doing better physically. Thank you that, you know, so-and-so is no longer sick or whatever. But we, off, we don't often pray and say, God, thank you because you adopted us as sons. God, thank you because, uh, because you chose us before the foundation of the world to be your people. God, thank you because you have given us your Holy Spirit, right? It, maybe I'm the only one, but I feel like sometimes we do not meditate on these blessings that we have in Christ, on these spiritual blessings. And I think that one of the key differences is that material blessings, I believe both believers and unbelievers can have, right? God in his infinite grace, in his in, in His love for all of humanity, he blesses everyone uh, materially, right? He, I know that we're getting kind of tired of the rain, but the, the point is God sends his rain over the, the just and the unjust. God shines the sun over the just and the unjust, right? So God gives blessings to all of his creatures and we should worship him for that. We should definitely thank him for his material blessings. But the key difference is that the, the spiritual blessings only belong to those who are in Christ. And therefore, we should worship him. We should, we should thank him and sing to him. So what are these blessings? Well, many people have divided this passage in, into different ways. Some people have said, well, you know, th this passage talks about the, the past blessings that God gave us the present blessing that we have in Christ, and then the future blessings that we will have with the Holy Spirit. Some people have divided it along the, the lines of the Trinity. So verses uh, four through six focus mostly on the work that the Father does. And then verses seven through 10 focus more on the work of Jesus. And then verses 11 through 14 focus more on the work of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I think those divisions are helpful, but I think bottom line, the, the, the work of the entire or the work of the whole Trinity is interwoven here. And I really, really appreciate how, uh, how Trinitarian this passage is, right? I, I mentioned last Sunday that there are many people that say, well, but the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And yes, I definitely agree that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but just because a word is not in the Bible it doesn't mean that we don't see the doctrine. We don't see the teaching clearly. And we see that here very, very clearly, right? Paul talks about the blessings that the Father has given us. And then he talks about how 
those blessings are mediated through Jesus. All of those blessings are possible through Jesus, the Son. And then he talks about how the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will receive all of these blessings. So you have a very clear Trinitarian doctrine here. Um, so kind of going along those lines, that's, that's more or less how we are going to divide it. Verses 3 through 6, we're going to focus on the work of the Father. Verses um, 7 through 10, we're, we will focus on the work of the Son. And then next week, Jordan will preach from verses 11 through 14, focusing a little bit more on the work of the Spirit. Um, So first we see in verse 4, and here he starts listing these blessings. Now, one thing that that might be helpful to notice is that verses 3 through 14 are actually one very, very long sentence. If you've taken writing classes, you know that this is not not how we do it here in America. (laughs) Um, You're supposed to have as many sentences as possible, but Paul did not take writing classes here. And he just wrote a very, very long sentence from verse 3 through 14. Um, but this, this very long, long sentence is just loaded with spiritual blessings, with all of the things that God has done for us in Jesus. Another thing to notice before we, get, uh, before we, we dive into it is that all of these blessings are in Christ. Notice how many times in the passage he says, in Christ, in him in the beloved, in him, over and over and over. This entire passage is about the things that God has given us in Christ. So verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. So this is, sorry, holy and blameless before him. This is incredible. There is no other way to put it, right? This passage is teaching that God chose us way before we existed, way before we were born, kind of like the psalm that we were reading today where it says that God knew us even before we were born, that God had, you know, uh, already written all of our days even before we were born. This is amazing. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, one of the reasons why I believe that this is incredible and and at the same time incredibly humbling is because he chose us before we could do anything good or bad, right? It's not like he looked forth in time and said, oh, I'm going to choose Ben because I know that he's a good guy and I know that he is, you know, he's smart and he knows me, so I'm going to choose him. No, 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 no. He chose us before the foundation of the world, before we could do anything good or bad. And in fact, if we are reading Ephesians correctly, right, especially in chapter 2, it says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So in other words, none of us could have even, if we had the opportunity, none of us would have chosen God if he had not chosen us first. So some people have said, well, you know, the doctrine of election actually, you know, makes you, makes you prideful or cocky because you can say, hey, look at me, God chose me. But I would say, no, it's actually all the opposite. 
it should humble us because basically it's saying that God chose us before we could have done anything good to impress him or to please him or, or to give any merit for us. Now, I, you know, I know that this is a, a difficult doctrine. I know that this is a doctrine that is highly debated. I remember when I was in, in my first year of Bible college, we were on, on you know, first, some of the first classes of, of theology that we were taking. And I remember when the professor brought up this teaching, the teaching of election. And I do remember that there were some students that were so upset about this, were so angry about this. Some of them were angry that they were crying. It was, it, was, it was incredible. There were people in our theology class, people who were crying about the fact that God chooses people. And I mean, I could understand that, right? I think this raises a lot of questions. Questions like, well, why does God choose some people and not others? Or, um, you know, if, if God chooses people, then why do we preach the gospel, right? If, if, if those who are elect are going to be saved and those who are not are not going to be saved, then why do we preach the gospel? And, you know, while we don't have time to go through all of these uh, objections, a couple of things that we can point out is, well, number one, this is something that the Bible is teaching, right? It's not something that we get to say, well, you know, actually this is, unlike the word Trinity, the word election, the word choosing is actually in the Bible. And the teaching seems very, very clear. Uh, another thing that I noticed is that I believe it's in 2 Timothy where Paul says that he endures all things for the sake of the elect so that they can also obtain salvation. So Paul, someone who was teaching that people are elect, he himself knew that because God had people elected, it was his job to go preach the gospel. Same thing when he was in Corinth in the book of Acts and uh, they were, he was discouraged and in a vision, God told him to stay in Corinth because he had many people in that city and that actually encouraged him to keep preaching the gospel. So if you are feeling discouraged, if you are feeling like, man, what is going on here in Aberdeen? It doesn't seem like we're making any progress. I think the doctrine of election could actually give us courage and, and into thinking, no, I think that God has people here in Aberdeen that still haven't heard the gospel that he wants to save. And therefore, like Paul, we should endure all things for the sake of the elect. Now, again, I do recognize this is a difficult doctrine. And I think that there comes a point where we just have to say, we trust God for his teaching. And I believe this is what Paul does. In, in, in Romans 9, he is developing this doctrine of election, of choosing. And it comes to, to the very end of the argument and basically what Paul says in verse 19 of Romans 9, he poses a, a, a possible objection. He says, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then this is Paul's response to this, to this uh, um, argument. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So I think Paul at some point gets, gets to the point where he says, who are we to question God? And, and I think that that is the attitude that we should take. I believe that these fellow classmates that I had that were crying and were angry and, and were gnashing their teeth was because they were questioning God. Was because they could not simply trust God and say, okay, God, you choose people and you do it for your purpose and for, according to your sovereign will. And all we can do is submit ourselves to you for you are God and we are not. So it, uh, it says, um, well, I guess another possible art, uh, uh, objection to this doctrine of election is, well, if God chooses people, doesn't that make us um, complacent, right? If, if, if you know that God has chosen you, if you know that, you know, he, he elected you before the foundation of the world, then I guess you can do whatever you want, right? Since he chose you. There's nothing else that basically nothing can happen for you to maybe lose your salvation or whatever. But notice what Paul says in verse four. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what is the purpose of our election? Is the purpose of our election just, you know, to do whatever we want since we are chosen already? No, the purpose of our election is to be holy and and blameless. When we think about God's mercy, God's infinite mercy, that before the foundation of the world, before I could do anything good or bad, he chose me. That should give me the motivation to say, I want to live for him. I belong to him and therefore I want to dedicate my life to him. I want to be faithful to him. I want to hate what he hates and I want to love what he loves. And so those who are elect, they will be holy and blameless. Some of you might be asking, well, how do I know if I'm elect or not? Well, are you living a holy and blameless life? Then there's a chance that you are elect. Are you not living a holy and blameless life? Well, I think you need to reconsider what, you know, your faithfulness to Christ, your faith in Jesus. All right, moving on to the next blessing that is ours. In Christ, in verse 5, Paul writes, or yeah, it, verse 5, it, it is a little bit uh, confusing because again, this is one long sentence. So it is a little bit confusing if that in love at the end of verse 4 goes with the chosen part or with the predestination part. But I would say, well, you know, probably goes, probably goes with both. In the end, we know that God's motivation is uh, his love. So verse 5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So the blessing that we have, one thing that defines us as Christians is that we have been adopted as sons. And this, again, should bring us to praise God, should bring us to glorify him, should bring us to thank him because he adopted us. We used to not belong to him. 
We were not a part of his family. We were Gentiles. And this is, this is one of the main things that Paul is trying to explain here. He is writing to the Ephesians who are Gentiles. And he is explaining how all of these things that originally were for the people of Israel, he is telling the Ephesians, now you are included in these blessings. Now you Gentiles are in Christ. And so for us, the, 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 the gap is really not that far because we are also Gentiles, just like the Ephesians. We are also Gentiles, but we can look at this text and say, wow, we used to be completely separated from the blessings of God, from the family of God. But now through Christ, God has included us in his family. He has adopted us to himself as sons. Now, one of the things that many have pointed out is that the use of the word son is actually uh, intentional because in that culture, it was the son, the, the male, not the daughter. It was the son who would inherit all of the rights, who would have all of the, all of the privileges and benefits of belonging to a family. Usually the daughter would not be, could not be an heir of, of these blessings. And so I think Paul is intentionally saying Christ, or sorry, God in Christ has adopted us with all of the benefits of the sons. And so it's saying everyone, men, uh, men and women who are in Christ are adopted and are receiving all of the benefits that belong to the Son. To think a little bit further about this, remember when God sent Moses to Pharaoh and he um, basically, he, he, was, he was ordering Pharaoh to let Israel go. And this is what he told him in one of the instances. He said, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son, and I say to you, Oh, sorry, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So many people have asked like, wow, wasn't God too harsh for killing Pharaoh's firstborn? Well, God is saying, you have my firstborn. You, when Pharaoh killed all of the, all of the, the sons of the, of the Hebrews, basically God is saying, you killed my firstborn. You hurt my firstborn. And if you do not let my son go, then I will kill your firstborn. And then fast forward to... Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 4, when Jesus is being baptized. And then when he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes down. And then this is what God the Father says of Jesus. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then Matthew goes on to show how Jesus is the, the new Israel, the new son of God, and how he goes through the wilderness and, and he's in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights and he endures temptation and all of that. But the point here is that Jesus is God's son. And now Paul takes this even a little bit further and says, in Christ, in God's son, now we are adopted as sons. And this is, this is so amazing. This is so encouraging for us because it means that just as God is pleased 
with his son, Jesus, if you are his son, if you are his daughter, if you belong to him, he is pleased with you. I think that we live in a society where sadly many, parents, many dads are missing. Whether dads who have abandoned their family or broken relationship with dads or, or maybe a, a dad that has already died or, or even a dad who is you know, far away. And I think this brings encouragement to us to know that God is our father that God adopted us as sons and daughters, and that the same phrase that God says that he is well-pleased with his son, he says to us as well, I am well-pleased with you. He adopted us as sons. And then notice the purpose of this adoption says, is according, or according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which we, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So ultimately, all of this is for God's glory. He is the one who is getting all of the glory out of this. Now, we move on to the work of the Son. And again, you know, we see the work of the Father. Ultimately, it is the Father giving us all of these blessings through the Son. But in verse 7, we actually see more of the work of the Son, of Jesus. It says, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So the, the first thing we see there in terms of the work of the Son is that in Jesus, we have redemption. Redemption means that we have been bought, that we have been set free that we have been delivered. It's the idea of a, of a slave market. It's the idea of someone who is enslaved to someone or to something else. And again, if we go back to, to, to Ephesians 2 and really to the rest of the letter, we learn that we were enslaved to sin, that we were enslaved to Satan. We learned that we were enslaved to death. We were lost and without hope, without God and without hope. And Jesus, in his infinite mercy, he redeemed us. He bought us from this slavery that we were, uh, that we were into and he rescued us and he made us his own possession. We belong to him because he paid for us and he paid with his blood. That's why we celebrate communion every Sunday because we remember the blood of Jesus that was the price that was paid for us to rescue us from our slavery. So are you, are you starting to see how, how robust the definition of someone who is a Christian is? Right? I mean, again, like I said, someone who is a Christian is no less than someone that believes in Jesus but it is way, way more than that. A Christian is someone who has been chosen before the foundation of the world. A Christian is someone who has been adopted into the family of God. And as we are seeing right now, a Christian is someone who has been redeemed, who has been bought and who now belongs to God because of the price that was paid with the blood of Jesus. This means that if we 
have been set free from our slavery to sin, from our slavery to, to, to Satan, from our bondage to, to death, this means that we are no longer under the power of sin. This means that we are now capable of choosing what pleases God. This means that we are now capable of defeating temptation. This means that we no longer have to serve our old master, which is sin. But now we have a new master. We have a loving master who, in fact, has adopted us as sons. And we get to serve him. We get to live for him because he bought us from our slavery. Now, something that is closely related is the forgiveness of our sins. In verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this is incredibly amazing because all of us, if we are honest, we have sinned. All of us, if we are honest, we continue to sin. All of us, if we're honest, we continue to struggle, even though we are no longer slaves to sin. A lot of the times we fail. A lot of the times we do the things that we know that we shouldn't be doing. We engage in the sins that we know that Jesus died for. A lot of the times we are not holy and blameless, but we sin against God. But a Christian is someone whose sins have been forgiven, whose sins have been removed. This is such good news. This is so amazing. This if you really, really understand that your sins have been removed, this will help you take a huge step in your Christian walk. If you really understand that God has already forgiven you for the sins that you committed, and even for the sins that you will commit in the future, I'm not saying go ahead and sin in the future. No, stay away from sin. But God, Jesus already died on the cross, even for, the, for our future sins. This will really, really help you in your struggle against sin in knowing that God in his mercy has already forgiven our sins. Colossians, which is very, very similar to the Ephesians, says that our record of sins that stood against us was nailed to the cross. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, our record of sins was placed upon him. He died on the cross for our sins, to forgive us of our sins. And once again, someone would say, well, but if, if we are already forgiven, then shouldn't this like, or doesn't this make you like feel more free to sin and do whatever you want? No, absolutely not. It's all the opposite. When you know that your sins have been forgiven, when you know that Jesus died for those sins, you want to sin less. You want to Please, God who has saved you. Lastly, in Jesus, and this is more something that God does, but in Jesus, verse 9, he makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things in on earth. Later in Ephesians, Paul continues to talk about this mystery. And basically what he's saying is that 
in Jesus, God has revealed this mystery to us. And, and you know, some of us might say, okay, what mystery? What are you talking about, right? If it's a mystery, what is it? Well, it, it is, or it is something that used to be a mystery, but now God has revealed it. And in Ephesians, oh man, I don't have the reference here, but I know that later in Ephesians, he continues to talk about this mystery. And he says that the mystery is that now the Gentiles have been included with God's people. Chapter 3, verse 6, it says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So God has revealed this mystery to us that we used to not belong to him, but now we Gentiles, we non-Jews, we have access to all of the blessings that originally belonged only to the Jews. We now have access to all of these blessings in Christ. This is the mystery that he is uniting or that he has united uh, uh, Jews and Gentiles into one new man. But this is not the end of, of this story. Because in verse 10, it says that it is as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So at the beginning of that plan is the unification of, of God's people, is one family of God, one people of God, one new people. But he is saying that the future, when, when the fullness of time comes, the future is that he will unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The hope that we have is not just this disembodied, you know, new humanity in heaven, spiritual bodies, kind of like ghosts or angels in heaven. The hope that we have is the hope of a new creation, is the hope of a new heavens and of a new heaven and a new earth of a new world where all things are united in Christ. The hope that we have is that God will redeem this entire world. And we will be with him as we saw in the book of Revelation. We will be with him forever. And all of his creation will be the new temple where his presence is day and night, where there's no need for sun, no need for temple because God is right there. That is God's final plan to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we, the church, right now, we get to be a part of that plan to unite all things in Christ Jesus. Again, this is why Paul has such a high view of the church because we are the first fruits of that unification of all things. We are the first fruits of that mystery that is now being revealed. So what is a Christian then? A Christian is someone who has been chosen by God. A Christian is someone who has been adopted as a son of God. A Christian is someone who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. A Christian is someone who has been forgiven of his, of her sins. A Christian is someone to whom God has revealed the mystery of uniting all things to himself in Jesus. That's, among other things that we're going to see next week, that's what make, or those are the things that make us Christians. So next time that you think about being a Christian, next time you think about your own identity as a Christian, 
Don't just simply think and say, well, I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus. Yes, absolutely. Belief in Jesus is essential for Christianity. But think of the richness of what it means to be a Christian. Think of the amazing relationship that we have with God, who is our Father, who is our Rescuer, who, who is our Redeemer. Think about the fact that He chose you before the foundation of the world, that you belong to Him. We were singing earlier, my, my one comfort both in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong to Him. I do not belong to myself. I belong to God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all of these blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you that it was not because of our doing or our, or our merit or intelligence or anything of the sort, but it was by your sovereign will and your glory that you chose us before the foundation of the world that you adopted us into your family, that your son Jesus redeemed us from our slavery to sin by his blood, that you forgave our sins and that you have revealed this mystery to us. You have revealed the mystery of the gospel to us, Lord. We praise you. Help us to live lives that reflect this knowledge that we have of who we are in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.